0: This is Get Uncomfortable, the podcast about race, politics, religion, and all the things we avoid talking about at holiday parties and in mixed company with me, Adam Smith. Since General Tecumseh Sherman, on behalf of the U.S. government, promised all freed slaves 40 acres and a mule and treaties bought about by the U.S.-Dakota War in 1862, discussions about compensation of indigenous and black folks for our land, trauma, and free labor have taken place. Reparations are not a new concept in the United States and have been paid to Japanese internment camp and Holocaust survivors alike. Yet, we get stuck when bills like H.R. 40 are introduced at the federal level, which merely call for a commission to study reparations. What many Americans should be reminded about this is that resources are not only set to create real healing from our history of colonialism, white supremacy, and anti-Blackness, but an equal economic playing field a debt that is far overdue. Today we are joined by Nevada Little Wolf and Brett Grant, who are key organizers and coalition builders who brought together Minnesota's Black and Indigenous communities to discuss reparations that were aimed to bridge and bring together each community. Nevada, Brett, welcome. Let's get uncomfortable. Nevada, Brett, welcome. Let's get uncomfortable. Thank you all for being here. So, we can just kick it off by just starting, you know, we'll talk specifically about Minnesota. But can you both talk a little bit why you think reparations are important and imperative in communities, especially as it relate as it um, relates to the United States move towards equity, justice, and real healing?
1: Well, I'll start. I mean, I think in Minnesota, we, have been looking at a lot of issues related to our disparities for quite a long time. And I can think about starting work in with youth organizing and community organizing and um youth justice and just issues around our community, particularly American Indian um, and other communities of color. And 20, thirty years ago, when we when I was like really starting out, I had a lot of people just say oh this isn't about race we're we're doing fine you're just trying to make this about a race issue and it's like well it when I can see that I, that we have uh American Indian kids and um black and brown kids going through systems at higher rates that's just what I see there's something is happening here and then I think over time we've We've had um, different organizations and institutions go into the research and and create research reports around the disparities. And um, one, for instance, in Northeast Minnesota, which was about um, the juvenile justice system and and the disproportionate amount of um, Black and Indigenous uh, youth that were incarcerated in like um, juvenile detention centers. And so, yes, lo and behold, these numbers are astronomical in the state of Minnesota and the disparities are very high when we look at health issues, economic issues, education issues kind of across the board. And so this is like, I, I would say that we, I think we've known this for a long time. And I think it's it's something that we really, we have an obligation to to do the work and get better um, and be better here in Minnesota. I think that's what led us, or at least brought, what brought me into the conversation around reparations really was my business partner, Brett Grant. And I think He could really talk, I think, more about kind of what was happening legislatively uh, related to reparations in Minnesota and the work that we continue to do uh, together.
0: Mm, Nevada, thank you. Yeah, Brett, and we definitely want to talk about Minnesota, right, because Minnesota is the model my home state, all the things. It isn't like reparations conversations are new. I mean, Tecumseh Sherman, 40 acres and a mule. People started after so-called reconstruction and emancipation and Juneteenth, they started with less than nothing, right? So there was some ideas about, okay, we have all these former enslaved people, right? What are we going to do? Um, how are we going to, because not only did people not own anything, which land ownership and education are the two wealth building things that we can do in our nation. And we've given not only black folks, but native indigenous folks. um, We have left it by systems and by laws, kept people out of those two things, land ownership and education. So when reconstruction happens and slavery is so-called abolished and what we've got to give folks, something to get started. And then people didn't keep their word in particular because the South, right? The South, the North needed the South and the South is coming back and the South is ticked off, right? You're not giving 40 acres of our land to these former slaves, right? And the North needed them to come back. And so it was like, no, we're not going to keep our word to do any of this. So Brett, talk a little bit about, because this isn't new, Talk about why reparations are important and how reparations not only can lead to true equity, but really to justice in our country.
2: Yeah. You know, yeah. Thank you for that. For me, it's um, it's simple it's because reparations really goes beyond talk. And it, 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 it brings into focus action. And so many people are willing to talk about equity and talk about this and talk about justice. But when you bring the conversation to reparations, now the talk has to meet the action. And whenever I think about it, I think about a conversation with a good friend of mine, an elderly white woman. We talked, had a lot of discussions about equity, justice, and she would always want to talk to me about ways that her organization could become more equitable. But I remember one conversation, I was saying, well, what about reparations? And then this time we were talking about in the context of finances and money and tangible things. I said, and I forgot the example I said, but it was something asking her, would you, you know, if you own some land, would you be willing to give your land up in the name of justice? And that's when she was like, well, I'd have to think about that. Whereas before, theoretically, yes. Oh, so we should do all these things and. Equity is important, but if it requires you to give up something, then it becomes a different matter. So that's what I think about. You know, and it's more nuanced because even in the discussion of reparations, it can go beyond just, you know, financial strategies or, or money or uh, those kinds of things. But I think it's important because it, again, it
0: matches talk with action.
2: That's really good.
0: Yeah. And, and I think like you're talking about, there's so many people for equity, but they aren't willing to acknowledge inequity, right? There can't be a positive. I mean, I'm not a scientist, but there can't be a positive without a negative, right? So I can't be for equity and not acknowledge that there are inequities that have benefited me. And there's so many folks when you have the reparations conversation that say, well, I don't have slavery so long ago. Well, how about then we get rid of all the stuff you have because slavery happened and Jim Crow and redlining and treaties that weren't kept and all of the things. And then we can start equal. But it's easy to talk about equity when the gun went off, you know, half a lap ago and you've been running around the track and then you say, well, okay, go ahead. We have to do things, but the first step is personally acknowledging I may have so-called pulled myself up by my own bootstraps but I did so on the moving walkway at the airport that helped me. Yes, I was walking, but the airport the the moving walkway was helping my momentum, right? So, Nevada, can you talk a little bit about from a standpoint cuz I want to kind of put a a bow on the reparations conversation about this part. What are some of the benefits? So, what do you tell our white brothers and sisters, right, in Minnesota? about the benefits of reparations for them and their communities. Because I think that's where the answer has to come, right? Yes, it's about native indigenous communities, black communities. We've been, we gave reparations to Japanese from the internment camps. There's a lot of Holocaust survivors whose families are still getting reparations, right? what are the benefits to somebody who isn't a member of the communities that would receive reparations? What are some of the benefits for them in those conversations that you've had?
1: I'm a big fan of Paul Wellstone, like many people in Minnesota. And we've all heard it, right? Like we've all heard his famous quote about, we all do better when we all do better. And I just think that You know, I I actually was at a meeting today and I stopped into this little gift shop and I was talking to the clerk and she told me that when she got to work this morning, she she saw footprints in the snow and that they weren't boot boot tracks or sneakers or anything like that. They were bare feet, like bare feet foot tracks in the snow. And so we were talking about the unhoused in Minneapolis, um, St. Paul area and across the state. And and i think about reparations like reparations at least in the conversations i've had with folks about reparations we didn't even really get to the point of like what is what is reparations what isn't reparations in terms of what that can look like but we we understood that there are things that should not be happening right like we should not have unhoused american indian people for instance in the twin cities or anywhere in the state when we have 11 sovereign nations here, and we have treaties that are in place for our sovereign nations. And and, and even if our uh, the tribal members in the state of Minnesota do not belong to one of the 11 sovereign nations, there still should be resources and opportunities for our Indigenous um, brothers and sisters and family. And so I, I think about, when I think about reparations, it's like I know that when our community is doing better, we bring so many resources back into the overall larger community. And that is like ultimately the ultimate thing that I think about related to reparations is just making sure that people have the things that they need, like the basic things, which is like, you know, a part of our treaty rights, but also um, it's just kind of basic human rights. And so I know that when we were working on reparations, the legislation in Minnesota, we, weren't, we didn't propose um, a bill that said reparations will be this, this and this. The, the bill was actually to say we want to bring together the African-American Black community Minnesotans and American Indian uh, Minnesotans together for to discuss what reparations could look like in this state to have the conversations and and to have i mean those are not they're hard conversations and we found that Brett and I when we were organizing at, you know for this legislation we found that this is that these conversations are very very difficult conversations they're hard conversations to have and to hold and to share it's also in in the movement forward and thinking about solidarity there's also hard conversations in that
0: that's so good Uh, Shout out to the late, great Paul Wellstone. We all do better when we all do better. So simple, but so real. Um, One of the pieces that you said that's so interesting that I think sometimes people miss, Nevada was talking about sovereign nations and treaties that haven't been followed. Um, There are treaties and agreements between the Black community and the United States that haven't been followed over and over and over again. So If you think of it as a handout, okay. If you think of it as an investment, an an economic investment, the reason why corporations like target don't pay a huge amount of taxes and amazon and and others is because of an investment of people in nashville they wanted amazon to come to nashville so they gave them tax breaks right because that's an investment in the community because it lifts people up it always seems like it's an issue when you give it to black or native or poor or queer folks when you give it to amazon and target it's not a problem right when you give then it then it isn't socialism anymore right so Those are the challenges. And so I think thinking through the process in Minnesota, Brett uh, Nevada touched on it. So talk a little bit about, because I know that Representative Clark and Susan Allen were involved in proposing the legislation. There are other municipalities. We got H.R. 40 out there. There's other states, right? that are looking at reparations commissions to study what does reparations, we can't even get that done. What does what would reparations look like? Talk a little bit about the process in Minnesota where the legislation got proposed and the uniqueness, because I think the piece of the Minnesota model that I would call it is the combination of two communities that have experienced very different trauma, but share some of the same journey and some of the same struggle and harm.
2: Yeah, that's, a, that's exactly why I was excited uh, to work on that legislation. And you know, I, I think the, the interesting thing to me is that when Representative Karen Clark approached me about the reparations work, um, she had already been working with a lot of community organizations in Minnesota and you know I actually wanted to propose it a lot earlier but based on those conversations determined that that wasn't the right time and even when when you know we decided to introduce it there was still some you know hesitancy on our part wondering is this the right time but but more of the conversation she had kind of led her to think like, yes, this is the right time. And one of the, I think one of the powerful things was this public hearing we had on the reparation. So before the start of this session in particular, she, this was the session, I think this was 2018. I always get that a little confused, but she was about to retire and she... Before she retired, she wanted to hold a public hearing, bringing together uh, African-American Minnesotans, American Indian Minnesotans. That was a language in the bill um, representing our communities and just hear from people. What you know, when you think about reparations, what what comes to mind? And so there were powerful testimonies. I mean, I always talk about that day. Was so powerful because the roles were reversed, where typically you had the legislators sitting at their, you know, their their powerful positions at those tables. The community was at those tables this time, and most of the legislators were in the audience. So the communities were the ones who were were holding those positions of power, um, visually, in addition to just the, the powerful testimonies. So, yeah, and you said it. I, I think when you talk about the way that this bill works, one, it was modeled after H.R. 40, the federal legislation, but the unique piece to this one was that it incorporated and wanted to bring both groups together. And so instead of just focusing on the African American community, they wanted to bring the African American community with the American Indian community together to study proposals, and then to bring those proposals to the legislature. And so, as Nevada was saying, a lot of those discussions ended up kind of losing sight of that, that the intent of the bill was for an African-American group to study and to come up with proposals for the African-American community, an American Indian group to study and come up with proposals for their communities. And then we could work in solidarity to support each other. But a lot of it kind of throughout the process got stuck on, well, you know, you already have reparations. So why do we need reparations? You know, that, why does your group need reparations when the African-American group has never received reparations? And it got lost in a lot of that. That wasn't the only thing, but that was a powerful piece at play in, in our communities coming together. Um, but for me, the learning possibilities is what makes that that union so powerful. Like you mentioned the 40 acres in a mule piece, you know, and I remember after one, one community meeting, you know, one of the sisters in the American Indian community came to me and said, you know what? One of the tensions we hold about the 40 acres in a mule piece is this question of on whose land? And so. I had never heard that before, you know, and I just and I, I was like, thank you, because do you know the educational value of just us coming together to have that discussion and to be able to like just dialogue about that? So I just that that to me is the, the powerful piece of bringing us both together.
0: That that was gold. Right. How do you give away 40 acres of land that belongs to the sovereign nations and to the people? it wasn't your land to give away in the first place. And so I think one of the really interesting things that you're touching on, right, is how colonialism and white supremacy works. In our communities, we, we, we don't understand sometimes that there's enough trauma for all. Well, your experience was worse than mine and your experience was worse. Nevada, talk a little bit about, because 13 nations in Minnesota, am I correct? 11 sovereign nations. 11, 11, I apologize, 11 sovereign nations in the state of Minnesota. So you don't just have the Black community and the American Indian community of Minnesota. You have the Black community and 11 nations who all have different ideas, different concepts of, hey, why don't we just get them to follow the treaties that are currently in place that they haven't kept? Why don't we do this? Nevada, talk a little bit about how those conversations played out in tribal communities and how and you and I talked about this, how some folks said, well, you need to get all of the communities agreement before we even have people hearings and talk about uh, legislation.
1: Just like a kind of a point of reference, I think first is just understanding that there's a difference between a treaty between the American government and sovereign nations, and then saying there's treaties that were between people or agreements between um, the government and groups of people or, or organizations or corporations. I think our nations are considered, and it's it is a technical term. It's not it's not the it's not necessarily a good thing. But we're considered dependent domestic nations um, within the United States boundary, right? And so we are not. Um, We are tribal nations and we have sovereignty and it's a unique political status that no other people or groups within the United States have. I think that's a really important thing to like understand that our treaties are the supreme law of the land. Right. And when the treaties were made, it really was an agreement that as as tribal people and tribal members, we would be giving up um, certain things in order for, and, and we would be receiving other things, right? And so that is actually how the state of Minnesota can be the state of Minnesota, is because of these treaties that um, occurred 1854, um, uh, 1855, you know, right around in that time is like when many of the the treaties in Minnesota were being signed, And so I just like I want to say that because I think it's really important for people to understand that these are um, legal documents and that they have uh, they have legal standing like no other documents do. um, And they are the supreme law of the land. And so I think that that is where the conversations when we are having conversations, we also know that. While there are 11 sovereign nations in Minnesota, which most of them are, you know, they're Anishinaabe or they're Dakota. So even within that, there's different cultural considerations between the tribal entities and groups. Um, and not to mention that each, you know, then there's the different bands of the tribes. You know, I think in Minnesota, we also have unique history with the um, the hangings that happened in Mankato and, and the laws that we still have on at the legislature uh, about Dakota people not even being allowed in the state of Minnesota. And so there was a lot of discussion at the people's hearing about the fact that Many uh, Indigenous people to Minnesota were actually, I mean, we know the history and the story about what happened in Mankato and and that execution, which was the largest uh, mass execution ordered by President Abraham Lincoln in our country, right? And that happened here in Minnesota, and um, it was Dakota people that were executed. But then there were so many people that were actually removed from this area and, and then pushed out into the Dakotas. And so... How do we reconcile that when they don't have that legal standing as a tribal nation within Minnesota boundaries? Or um if their families or or um their ancestors were moved out, but they're now living in a totally different area, how can they also seek reparations in Minnesota? So there were a lot of very, I think, robust conversations about what the like because and we had to get into like the history of the state to really understand. There's a lot more to this conversation than just this idea that, I think a lot of people want to say, oh, you want reparations because you want a paycheck or something, right? Like, you just you just want money, and it's like that is not like it's like we really want to get at like where these issues stem from and like why like why we're in a position right now to even start talking about reparations, and like that isn't even getting to like what does reparations mean for our communities.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Get Uncomfortable. Get Uncomfortable is produced by me, Rachel Hansen, and Adam A. Smith. Now, we wanted to let you know that this episode is part one of a two-part conversation talking about reparations in Minnesota.